In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. I was having a discussion with a colleague recently, and the question arose of what is distinctive about Christianity's view of ethics. Obviously, there's many great ethical thinkers that we can point to in many cultures and societies who have said many things that are true about what it means to be a good person and a good human being. And if a Christian were to draw up his list of virtues and compare it to a list of virtues of an ancient pagan like Aristotle, there'd be a lot of overlap. We see a lot of the same good things in humanity that the pagans saw. So what's distinctive about the way Christians look at ethics, uh, if anything? And I told him that I think the most distinctive feature of Christian ethics is its um, very palpable awareness of the fact that as human beings, we are creatures with an inside and an outside. Now, to a certain extent, we all have this awareness and this intuition that we have our inner thoughts and our outward actions. But I think Christianity realizes that distinction ethically in a way that other ethical traditions do not. If you were to show someone, say if you were to show Aristotle, a man who um, is faithful to his wife, is kind to his children and to other people, who helps the poor, who makes the necessary sacrifices at the temple to the gods, does all the sort of outward things that a virtuous person is supposed to do, and you were to say to Aristotle, is this person virtuous? Aristotle would say certainly he is. Uh, Look at his behaviors. He's, He's clearly a virtuous person. But a Christian could look at the same person, a person who is faithful to his spouse and kind to people and helped the poor and went to church every Sunday and listened to sermons and that sort of thing. And you could say to a Christian, is this person a virtuous person? And the Christian would have to say, perhaps, perhaps. And why would, why would there have to be that reservation? Why would that have to be Um, Any qualification to that statement? I mean, all those outward behaviors look like the sorts of things you're supposed to do. Well, as C.S. Lewis reminds us, the chief sin in Christianity is not a lack of self-control. It's not lust or greed or anger or any other things that we can easily point to outwardly. The chief sin for a Christian is pride. And you can do all the right things outwardly but do them for your own sake. And even though outwardly no one might be able to tell the difference, all we'd be doing is heaping up damnation for ourselves the entire time because we're doing it all for ourselves and our own satisfaction and happiness and glory. And though it may not seem like it at first glance, I think this gospel passage that we read today from Matthew 9 is thematically very much related to the idea of the outside and the inside that's so crucial to a Christian understanding of ethics and of righteousness. So let's dig into this passage and see how and where that theme um, comes about and is expressed. So in the first verse, uh, Jesus is going home. Uh, In Matthew's gospel, this story immediately follows the story of the Gadarene demoniacs, um, a pretty appropriate story for the Halloween time of year because one of the spookier stories in the gospel. 
these demon haunted people that are living in a in a graveyard. Um, and Jesus, but Jesus casts out the demons, and um, the Gadarenes cast him out. They're actually not really not really very happy with him, um, and so he has to go back home, and back to his own city. Now we know from the parallel passages in Mark and Luke that the own city that that Matthew is referring to here is not Nazareth. Uh, it's actually Capernaum. Uh, it seems that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, might have spent a lot of his childhood in Nazareth, so much that he was known as somebody from Nazareth. But it seems like at the commencement of his ministry, he was a resident of Capernaum, enough so that it could be called his own city. So already we have this idea of outside and inside. We, we, we've, we're coming back from the outside with the Gadarenes, and we're going back home into the inside, into our own uh, town. And as he returns... A uh, paralytic, uh, someone who's paralyzed, is brought to him. And unfortunately, Matthew leaves out some of the more colorful details that we get in the parallel passages in uh, Mark and Luke. We don't get the story of these men um, taking this man on his couch onto the roof of this house and actually removing the tiles because they can't get in through the front door. The, the crowds are too great. But they get up onto the roof and they take off all the tiles and they lower the man down on this couch. It must have been an extremely disorienting and, um, and a dramatic event. Um, but uh, we only get those details from the parallel passages. But again, we have that idea of outside and inside. They're on the outside of this house where Jesus is. And they're going to do whatever it takes to get inside because they want to get this man to Jesus. And, you know, even that is perhaps a reminder to us that sometimes the ends justify the means, so to speak. Um, if someone were to try to get somebody to church today and, and they were to try to come in through the roof, I think our Virgil would have something to say about that. That's not, not especially since the front door is right there, but <laughs> um, the, their hearts are in the right place. They want to get this man to Jesus because they know that Jesus is going to be able to solve his problems. And again, this man's paralyzed. He can't move. He, he is, he's bound to this bed or this couch and has to be brought in by his friends. And very interesting phrase here, it says that Jesus saw their faith. We have many reports of healings in the Gospels where Jesus sees the faith of the person who wants to be healed and says that you, because of your faith, you can now be healed. But here, he doesn't just see the faith of the man who's brought before him, the man who's paralyzed and lying on the couch. He sees the faith of his friends bringing him to Jesus as well. And it raises the question, which I think is a good one, of how much we benefit from the faith of those around us. Certainly, we saw an example of that just this morning. We, we see that one of the benefits of having... One of the benefits of having believing parents, including discipline, is that our believing, <laughs> our believing parents will bring us into Christ's kingdom through, through the sacraments, through the sacrament of baptism, and through the faith that our parents have, we're given an, an inestimable privilege of being brought into Christ's kingdom and made a heir, an heir of the kingdom of God, and given Christian instruction, like instruction in the Lord's Prayer and the, and the creeds and the Ten Commandments. Um, these are all privileges that we get to have, not through our own faith, but through the faith of those that are around us. Now, ultimately, the faith of those around us can't save us. We must have our own, develop our own personal faith as well. 
Um, but the privileges of being around people of faith are very great. And I think in this situation, we see that the paralytic himself has faith. I don't think that Jesus is supplementing the lack of faith in the paralytic with the faith of his friends. I think, but the paralytic's faith is supplemented and helped by the faith of those around him. And that's something that we experience as a church community as well. It's not just, Christianity is not just going solo and trying to be as faithful as we can on our own. It's joining our faith together in ways that we can bless one another, and edify one another, and pray for one another, and be um, important uh, elements in contributing to each other's salvation. So he sees, he sees their faith... And he gives uh, a response that I would venture to say that people were not expecting. Because if you were to see this man on this couch and being brought to Jesus, you would think that the, the main thing that he needs from Jesus is to be healed of his paralysis and to be able to walk. You know, all these sorts of people are brought to Jesus with all sorts of sicknesses and ailments, and he heals them. That's something he's already known for. That's why there's such a big crowd around this house. Um, that's why people are pressing in to see him for one reason that they want to get their uh, ailments and their sicknesses healed but again we can only see the outside right we don't see the inside but jesus can see the inside and he knows that the chief need of this man isn't actually his uh, to have his paralysis healed it isn't actually that but surely that's what this man must have thought in being brought to Jesus, and surely it's what his friends thought in bringing him to Jesus, that there's going to be some kind of miraculous healing. Um, but the response they get is, uh, be of good cheer. Your, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus could see the inward part of this man and knew that his heart and soul was crushed with grief over whatever the sin was. Maybe it was maybe it was one sin in particular that he was grieving over. Maybe it was a number of sins. Um, but I don't think we should think of that as Jesus uh, deciding not to heal him and just forgive his sins instead. I don't think it was that. I think Jesus saw that in this particular case, this ailment was sent as an affliction because of this sin. I think that's the implication that we should draw from this passage. Jesus' intention from the beginning is to heal him as well. But he can see that the sin that this man had committed and was grieving over and this physical ailment and affliction were so closely related that he couldn't heal the one without forgiving the other. And that shouldn't lead us, of course, to draw any kind of hasty conclusions that whenever somebody has a physical ailment or a sickness, it's because of some kind of sin they've committed. It doesn't quite work like that. And we know from other passages in the Gospels, um, when Jesus' disciples speculate about, well, well, was this man's ailment caused by his sin or his parents' sin, Jesus is very clear about the fact that some ailments are just sent for the glory of God and to work out his purposes in this world and aren't necessarily a punishment for any particular sin. But the close relationship between the forgiveness that Jesus extends to this man and the healing that comes later on, I think should lead us to believe that these, this ailment and this affliction was closely related to the sin that's forgiven. And so he says, be of good cheer, be encouraged, don't be crushed by grief, don't despair, your sins are forgiven. And the reaction of the scribes is to say that Jesus has to think, not to say, but to think that Jesus has committed a blasphemy here. Why do they think that Jesus is blaspheming? Clearly, Jesus is exercising a sort of ministry 
um, different from other ministries of repentance that we've seen in the Gospels. We know that John the Baptist had a ministry where people would come to him confessing their sins, and he would wash them with a baptism for the, re- for the remission of sins. Um, the, no, we don't hear anybody calling that blasphemy, so something different must be going on here. Um, so what's, what's different? What's different is that Jesus is not um, waiting for a confession. He's not waiting for any kind of repentance. He's not administering some kind of baptism that's supposed to communicate God's forgiveness of sins to this paralytic. He's claiming by his own authority and in his own words to forgive sin. He's saying, because I say so, this sin is gone. This sin is forgiven. And we know from the parallel passages, again, in Mark and Luke, that the reasoning that's going through these Pharisees' minds is that who can forgive sin like that except God alone? Who can say your sins are forgiven you? Who can just, by their words, take away your sins unless it's God himself? So that's why they think that Jesus has committed blasphemy. They think that he has uh, taken upon himself the prerogatives that belong to God alone. Uh, Now, this is something we should think about carefully as Anglicans, of course, because we believe that in accordance with the Gospel of John, where Jesus says to his disciples that they were going to be ministers and witnesses to his Gospel, whosoever sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whosoever sins you retain are retained. Jesus gives a ministry to his ministers and disciples to forgive sins, but he never makes them the author of that forgiveness. When a priest or another minister pronounces an absolution, he's not really forgiving sins by his own authority. He's communicating the fact that by Christ's authority, those sins are already forgiven and remitted. Um, And uh, that is done so that our faith might be strengthened. It's difficult for us to really believe our sins are forgiven unless someone that we can see right in front of us tells us, yes, your sins are forgiven. God has forgiven those sins. And again, that's not taking the prerogative that belongs to God alone to say that we can just forgive sins just by saying so, but it's being done as a ministry, as a subordinate uh, job that we've been given by God, that's been given to ministers by God, to pronounce the absolution and forgiveness that he has already secured for those who are penitent. Um, And so I I don't want to defend the, the scribes too much here, though, because we shouldn't think that their objection is really intellectually honest. We shouldn't think that the Pharisees are just have an intellectually honest struggle with how can Jesus be forgiving sins here? If so, they could have easily asked, wait a minute, you just said that guy's sins were forgiven just because you said so. Isn't that something only God can do? How, how, could, how can you have the authority to say that? They could have raised those objections in an intellectually honest fashion, and I'm sure Jesus would have engaged with them uh, and explained by by the the authority that had been given to him, that he had that he had to do this, but they just think it. They don't say it, right? Their concerns are not to present intellectually honest objections. It's just to catch Jesus in something that he shouldn't be doing. It's to play a gotcha game. And if we're not careful, we we of course can practice the same thing. Um, we can look for deficiencies. We can try to catch people in faults or things that they shouldn't be doing. Um, just to catch them and not really to engage with them or to try to help them, um, which, is what the, which is what the Pharisees are doing here. 
Um, but again, like these thoughts are in their hearts, right? They're inward thoughts. This is a part of their insides. But Jesus, who is God, can see what's inside, and he brings that out, and he responds to it. Uh, and he says, why do you think evil? Why do you think evil in your hearts? Why are you content to slander me um, in, your, in your minds and in your hearts without really um, telling me what's on your mind? And he proposes to um, he proposes to bring a remedy to this situation. He says, "Okay, you don't think I can forgive sins just by saying so? Well, which which is which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say pick up your pick up your bed and walk? Which which is easier? If I can do one, can't I do the other?" And uh, at first glance, this argument of Jesus's doesn't uh, really seem that convincing or compelling uh, in the sense that our, our sins, again, are an inner spiritual condition, and the ailments of our body, even total paralysis, is an outward physical condition. It seems like it would actually be harder to forgive sins um, than it would be to heal the body. Why does Jesus say, because I can heal the body, therefore I can forgive sins? Is that really a convincing argument on Jesus's part? And I mean, that's true that it is a greater work to forgive someone's sins than just to heal their, their bodily ailments. But what Jesus is saying is you don't realize that I have power within me to say it and make it so. And because you can't see the fact that when I say your sins are forgiven, that makes it so, let me show you how powerful my word is in something you can see. He's, he's adapting himself to the, the weakness of their own um, attitudes and the weakness of their own orientations. They won't believe it unless they see it. So you won't, you won't believe my authoritative word when you can't see it. So let me show you my authoritative word working out its way in, the, in this world. And so Jesus shows that just by saying it, he can heal this man's ailment. Just like just by saying it, he can forgive this man's sins. And that shows, really, that he's God, right? We have plenty of examples of healings in Scripture before the time of Jesus' ministry, but, and they're done by holy men, but they're done by interceding with God, by praying to God, by praying that God would give them the ability to do this thing. Jesus doesn't ask anybody to be given anything for the ability to do these things. He has the power and authority in himself to do these things because he is God. But again, outwardly, all they see is a man. The fact that Jesus is divine and the fact that Jesus is God is an inward and spiritual reality that is not clearly manifested to him just by his exterior physical presence. And so he shows them an exterior physical miracle to demonstrate the power and authority of his word. And notice um, the reasoning that the, Pharisee, that the scribes and the Pharisees have is that nobody can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus never disputes that premise. Jesus never points out, no, actually, other people have been given authority to forgive sins on earth. It's not something that, that belongs to God alone. He never disputes that point. But he um, demonstrates his power outwardly to show his power inwardly to forgive sins. 
And uh, Jesus never says either that he's been given the authority to forgive sins, but he just says that he has the authority as the Son of Man to forgive sins because of his divinity, which has been joined to his humanity. And so Jesus speaks his authoritative word over this paralytic, and sure enough, his paralysis departs from him, and he gets up, and he takes his bed, and he walks off. And the people marvel at it, but notice they marvel under a misapprehension. They marvel at the idea that God has given such authority to men. But Jesus never said that anyone gave him that authority. He just said that he had the authority. But notice that their misunderstanding is an intellectually honest one. They are just looking at what's in front of them and reasoning the best they can to what they think happened. It's different from what the Pharisees are trying to do and catch Jesus in something that he shouldn't be doing. So Jesus is willing to be gentle and tolerant towards their misunderstanding, where he was sharp and reproving towards the intellectually dishonest pseudo-misunderstanding of the scribes and the Pharisees. So as we ponder this gospel today, let's reflect on our status as beings that have an outwardness and an inwardness. You may feel today that outwardly you look fine to other people. You look like you've got everything together. You look like you've got everything together and everything is going fine for you. Whereas you might realize that inwardly your soul is churning because of guilt because of memories of things that have happened that you can't quite get away from. Or maybe it doesn't have to do with sins at, uh, sins at all. Maybe it's just an inner mental darkness that you just feel that pe other people can't see. And you feel like there's such a disconnect between what other people see and what's inside of you. But Jesus knows what's inside each and every one of us. And he is ready to extend his forgiveness to us if we are penitent. So when the absolution is pronounced later on in the service, when, the, when the, our, our priest, Father Jim, gets up and pronounce the, pronounces the forgiveness of sins, know that if you are penitent, that is, is if God himself were speaking to you and giving you that forgiveness. You can take that home and believe that and know that those things that are troubling you, those things in your past that you can't feel like you can quite get away from, those things that are making you downcast and depressed, those things truly are forgiven because you are penitent and because we, are, uh, the ministers of God have been given authority to pronounce that forgiveness over you. That forgiveness is a reality. If you feel like you're dealing with problems inside that other people can't see, uh, these could be problems with just the sorts of mental darkness and confusion and other problems that can come about in our minds. Know that Jesus sees those problems and he does want to help you and he does want to heal you. He doesn't just look at the outside like other people do. He sees the inside and he wants to help you outwardly and inwardly. So as we go forth from here, Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, who sees our hearts, who sees that what is within us, from whom we can hide no secrets, we pray that we would bring our needs and concerns to you, that our own faith and the faith of those around us who want to help us and pray for us and bring us to you 
that those needs and concerns of our heart, whether they be outward and bodily, or whether they be inward and spiritually, that all these things would be laid before you, and that you would speak your authoritative word over these things. That when you pronounce your forgiveness through your ministers, that our sins really would be forgiven, that we would be truly penitent, and that we would be freed from those sins and from the sorrow of those sins, that we would be filled with good cheer and good courage, and that we would not despair or shrink from you. And we pray that all the, any of those who might be experiencing problems with um, mental problems and mental darkness and those sorts of difficulties, that, and who feel that nobody knows and nobody can tell and nobody cares, we pray, Lord, that uh, they would all know that you do care and that it is your will to heal these things and that it is your will to help us and you see these things and know these things and you care about these things. And we pray for those who are experiencing any kind of bodily afflictions outwardly because of sins that have been committed inwardly. We pray that they would find forgiveness and absolution and that those uh, trials and that those physical ailments and weaknesses would be taken away from them and they would be restored to health. We thank you, Lord, for the faith that you have given us and the faith you've given our, those around us, both of which we benefit from and both of which helps us to bring to you our eternal Lord. Amen. All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own. Have